What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 40, Feasting, Laughing, and Dancing, in which we take a break from the narrative history of the Nile Valley to focus on Egyptian parties and celebrations of the divine. There will be drunkenness, debauchery, sexuality, and mischief. I have treated this behavior frankly, but not crudely. Still, if you find such matters distasteful, this episode may best be skipped. This episode is brought to you by Rich, Lane, and Marcus, who donated to the podcast while I was writing it. At this rate, I'll never get around to thanking the dozens of people who have donated, but I promise I am working on it. To all my listeners, thank you very much for your support. The mouth of a perfectly contented man is filled with beer, said an anonymous Egyptian of the Old Kingdom. And at festival time, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an Egyptian disagreeing with the sentiment. After all, free beer was one of the big pulls of a festival. Egyptian beer was a cloudy wheat beer produced from malted grains, which could be flavoured with honey or fruit to taste. It was also one of the most prominent and valued of consumables, and to make a beer hall with someone was synonymous with spending time in conviviality and friendship. It was said that the brewing of beer had been taught to humanity by Osiris himself, the ancient god-king of the underworld, whom the Greeks equated with Dionysus. Wine and beer were his products, prepared from ingredients grown in the fertile farming estates with which this god was most intimately connected. In a time when drinking water carried a very significant risk of illness, the use of beer in Egypt served to refresh and rehydrate without danger from bacteria. As a result, it was probably the most important nutritional supplement in the Egyptian diet. Wealthy and lowly alike used it daily. Men, women, and children drank it together in the home. And the phrase, to make a beer house, became synonymous with gathering in friendship. Of course, there was no better occasion for conviviality and festivity than a religious festival. The divine festivals of ancient Egypt were probably the most significant events in the calendar. The most important celebrations came around during the northern spring, roughly between August and November. In this period, which saw both the flooding and receding of the Nile waters, the festivals piled up into a nearly non-stop party, as several of the country's unique myths and legends were celebrated in a short span of time. They were a big deal. Like, a seriously big deal. In the 5th century BCE, the Greek historian Herodotus visited Egypt. In his travels, he was fortunate to be present when a large festival of Hathor 
occurred at the delta city of Per Bast, literally the House of Bastet. Here, amidst the splendour of a late period temple, the population came alive in celebration of the divine goddess of fertility, sexuality, motherhood, and joyous celebration. The aged Greek was fascinated by the proceedings, and recorded it at length. Quote, Men and women come sailing all together, vast numbers in each boat, many of the women with castanets which they strike, while some of the men play pipes during the whole time of the voyage. The remainder of the voyagers, male and female, sing the while and make a clapping with their hands. When they arrive opposite any of the towns upon the banks of the stream, they approach the shore, and, while some of the women continue to play and sing, others call aloud to the females of the place and load them with harangues, while a certain number dance, and some stand up and lift their dresses, revealing themselves. After proceeding in this way all along the river course, they reach Perbast, where they celebrate the feast with abundant animal sacrifices. More wine is consumed at this festival than in all the rest of the year besides. The number of those who attend, counting only the men and women and omitting the children, amounts, according to the native reports, to 700,000. End quote. I don't know what your idea of a good time is, but to me, that sounds like a fantastic party. Like a Mardi Gras on the river. Boat parties, castanets, singing and drunken dancing. Then, of course, there's the public nudity, which, apart from being enormously entertaining, actually had a logical basis in myth. In a small interlude of the legendary Contendings of Horus and Seth, Hathor came before her father, Ray, who had retired to his tent in despair at the ongoing conflict. Hathor's remedy for his grief was to lift her dress and expose herself to him. Ray laughed heartily at his daughter's mischief and found his despair lifting. Hathor's sense of humour and brazen displays of her most intimate anatomy were reenacted by the Egyptian woman. Connecting more strongly with the goddess by imitating her behaviour strengthened one's connection with the divine and was probably quite fun to boot. And, according to the Egyptologist Ellen Morris, it was probably hilarious. Working on the theory of incongruity, the idea that humour can be stimulated by either a sense of superiority, a sense of relief, or a sense of surprise, she suggests that Hathor's display before Ray was funny precisely because it was so unexpected. Here, a goddess in full maturity does something we would usually associate with a two-year-old, and her father is greatly amused by its unexpectedness. After all, who would think that a perfect cure for the blues was to simply flash someone? Academic study of humour, and what makes people laugh, is quite a fascinating branch of psychology, and it's extremely important to remember that despite the seriousness of their art, their statues, their tombs, and their monuments, the Egyptians also had a wonderful sense of humour about the divine. Figures like Horus, Seth, and Hathor were not just legends or powerful beings ruling over nature. They were capricious, combative, and hilarious. That may be hard to imagine in a cultural environment 
dominated by the somber doer rituals of monotheistic religions. But for many polytheistic cultures, a sense of joy and humor pervaded ancient myths and celebrations. Japan, for instance, has a story quite similar to the Hathor one, in which the solar goddess, Amaterasu, sulking in a cave, was drawn out when the mischievous Uzume, quote, became divinely possessed, exposed her breasts, and pushed her skirt down. The resulting laughter drew Amaterasu out, and the sun shone once more. I love odd coincidences in mythology like this. But anyway, let's get back to the point. Festivals. The actual form of celebration in an Egyptian festival would vary somewhat depending on economic class. For the wealthy, priests and nobles and such, parties were filled with goose, duck, fine meat, breads, vegetables, beer, and wine. Men and women would sit, segregated, in conversation and drinking, while scantily clad musicians played flutes and lyres. In the heat of the spring and summer evenings, many of the guests would place a small cone of scented beeswax atop their wigs. These would melt over the course of the evening, anointing their hair with sweet scents and disguising any body odour that may come from sweat. All very elaborate, and by their standards, very civilised. But what about those not privileged to enter the inner sanctums of temples or mansions? The common folk, locked outside, what did they get? Well, to put it bluntly, they got roaring drunk. The celebrations of Hathor were particularly excellent examples of debauchery. After all, drinking and lascivious behaviour helped to reenact yet another legendary event associated with the goddess. Essentially, Hathor had been sent to Earth by Rey to punish humanity for disrespect. Hathor, in her guise as Sakmet, the feminine power, began to wreak bloody vengeance. Her slaughter became uncontrollable, and when the great god commanded her to cease, she refused. In alarm, the gods enacted a cunning plan. They took huge quantities of beer, dyed it red like blood, and poured it into the Nile and fields. Hathor, drawn to the smell and the sight, began to drink deeply. Soon, she was totally inebriated, and fell into a deep sleep. The slaughter was averted, and humanity was saved. As you can imagine, this kind of legacy gave beer a pretty prominent place in the celebrations, and the festival at Perbast would have been an occasion with a bar tab larger than any you've ever seen. Hathor's sexual power, her passion and intoxication, and her role in rejuvenating the crops meant that the beer flowed freely, and festivals for her honour probably reached an incredible level of debauchery. In fact, it is entirely possible that the celebrations of Hathor not only included a lot of drinking and eating, but also a lot of public sex. Egyptologist and archaeologist Betsy M. Bryan of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore argues today that some feasts and celebrations included an element of public fornication, usually described in euphemism. Scribblings on the side of pots recount the instruction, let them drink and let them have sex before the god. Another text records a woman's reminiscences. Quote, I remember visiting the ancestors, 
And when I went, anointed with perfume as a mistress of drunkenness, travelling the marshes. This last phrase, according to Brian, is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Essentially, the woman went to the temple anointed with perfume, and somewhat inebriated, had a good time. Whether sexual behaviour occurred publicly or not, these festivals probably did include a lot of discreet sexuality. At the very least, you'd have couples saying to each other, Hey honey, with all this free beer and dancing and euphoria, I'm kind of feeling in the mood. Shall we? After all, people do that regularly on a Friday night. Add a free bar tab and the high of religious belief, and you would probably have a very potent atmosphere of sexuality. But such exaltation came at a price. When the bar tab ran out, the people were left to their drunkenness, and most probably went to sleep out in the open. But when the morning came, they were awoken to nothing less than the booming sound of ritual drums. The priests would emerge from the temple, bearing the statue of the god in her portable shrine or bark. Drummers and musicians would offer rhythms and melodies for the goddess, and one can only imagine what such a racket did for the hungover guests waking up around them. That being said, not all Egyptian festivals were raucous celebrations of drunkenness and overconsumption. More solemn public events also occurred during the year, the most important of which was the event now known as the Passion Play of Osiris. A Passion Play is a theatrical performance intended to recreate the suffering, death, and sometimes rebirth of a holy figure. The most widely known version of this is the Passion of Jesus Christ, which is often performed at Easter, particularly within Catholic communities. Other examples include the Tazia of Shiite Islam, which commemorates the day that Hussein ibn Ali, the grandson of Muhammad through his daughter Fatima, was ambushed and killed in 680 CE. But we'll get to that in a much later episode. The Passion of Osiris was a recreation of the murder and resurrection of the great god, who had once ruled Egypt. The story goes that Osiris was murdered by his jealous brother Seth, and thrown into the river Nile. His body drifted downstream until it was found by Isis, his wife. The great goddess mummified Osiris, and through her divine magic was able to procreate with his corpse. Soon after, she gave birth to the living falcon Horus, who became Egypt's eternal king, after besting Seth in a variety of contests. A myth that I'm sure many of you are somewhat familiar with, but what about its recreation in Egyptian festivals? Given our current place in the narrative history, it's fitting that the earliest documentation for this ritual comes from the 12th dynasty. In the reign of Senusaret III, grandson of Nubkaure Amenemhat II, a man named Iker Neferet was sent to Abydos to oversee the preparations and performance of the Passion Play. Iker Neferet travelled southward to the ancient sacred city, where he erected a stela describing the ritual, a stela which survives to this day. His descriptions are pretty vague, so instead of reading through it, I'll provide a more detailed summary of the process, as historians have reconstructed it. On the first day, 
the celebrants enacted the procession of Wepwawet. Similar to Anubis, Wepwawet was an ancient jackal deity, a guardian of the necropolis, and the opener of the ways into the west. Wepwawet championed the cause of Osiris. In the procession, it is speculated that a priest would wear a mask of the god and act out his role. When other actors, dressed as the anonymous followers of Seth, attacked the procession, Wepwawet would lead the defence and strike them down. Thus, the first day passed in conflict, representing the treachery and jealousy of Seth that so upset the ancient order. On the second day of the festival, Osiris himself emerged from the temple. A statue of the god was carried westward by a company of priests until they entered the ancient necropolis which housed the burials of Egypt's most ancient kings, including Kasa Kemwe of the Second Dynasty. Of course, moving into such hallowed ground required solitude and privacy. The stipulations for this are recorded in a later papyrus, which makes some clear instructions. Quote, When this is recited, the place is to be completely secluded, not seen and not heard by anyone except the chief lector priest and the Setem priest. One shall bring two women with beautiful bodies. They shall be made to sit on the ground at the main portal of the Hall of Appearances. On their arms shall be written the names of Isis and Nephthys, to be done in the third hour of the day, and also in the eighth hour. End quote. In other words, two women of great beauty would kneel before the statue of the mummified Osiris. Taking on the role of Isis and her sister Nephthys, they would mourn aloud, keening and wailing in a persistent lament. These lamentations must have been a haunting sound amidst the tombs of the long-dead kings, and officials of more than a thousand years. Today, women of the Middle East and Africa perform what is known as an ululation at times of celebration and of mourning, which can sometimes be complimentary. While we do not know exactly how ancient Egyptian women mourned, it is reasonably likely that they did so in a manner somewhat similar to the modern ululation. The second day came to a close in this manner. On the third day, the mourning and wailing of Isis and Nephthys continued. This symbolized the mourning of Isis after finding her husband's body and the slow process by which his mummification and resurrection could be achieved. By this point, I imagine the women's throats were getting rather sore, if they weren't being relieved by new actors every so often. An ululation is not easy to keep up, even just for a few hours a day. But perhaps the pain or exhaustion added to the effect, and made the moment more powerful. Then came the most important moment, the night ritual of the fourth day, in which priests and priestesses prayed before the statue of the god. At sundown, a priest of Osiris performed the ceremony of burial for the deceased god. Morning continued throughout the night, until at dawn, a priestess of Isis led the ritual of resurrection. This was the core of the festival, in which all creation hung in the balance. The proper resurrection of Osiris meant the renewal of the crops, the fertilization of the soil during inundation, and the innovation of the ruling king. Simply put, 
it had to be pulled off without a hitch. I can scarcely imagine the pressure felt by priests in charge of this moment. But inevitably, the dawn would come, and the final day arrived. With the successful resurrection, Osiris could resume his throne. Priests crowned his statue with the Atef, a combination of the white crown of Upper Egypt and the feathers of Ma'at, ultimately symbolizing the union of these two powers. The priests then took the statue out of the necropolis, where it had sat since the second day, and returned it to the temple's inner sanctum. Finally, the head priest, or king if he was present, raised a pillar known as the Jed Pillar in front of the throne. A pillar which symbolized the eternal stability and strength of Osiris's rule. And with this act, the ceremony was complete. Osiris had been buried, mourned, and resurrected in an elaborate multi-day festival. Thus passed perhaps one of the most important celebrations in the Egyptian year. While other festivals had great significance, only the burial and resurrection of Osiris assured the rejuvenation of the soil at the end of the inundation. The fertility of the crops in the year ahead, the renewed energy and strength of the living king, and the abundance of wine and beer in months to come. Osiris had a stake in all of these beliefs, and to properly innovate and renew his immortal soul was the most important task of the high priests of Abydos. So, we have two radically different types of festival celebration. One debauched, one somber. But each being of the utmost importance to the components of nature to which they related. It was the Roman biographer Plutarch that gave us the earliest surviving description of the Osiris myth in its complete form. His version of the Osiris and Isis tale is a lovely piece of ancient writing in which he muses on a philosophical idea that, in my estimation, is one of the key points to keep in mind when considering the idea behind Egyptian ritual festivals. Plutarch writes, The effort to arrive at the truth and especially the truth about the gods, is a longing for the divine. For the search for truth requires for its study and investigation the consideration of sacred subjects, and it is a work more hallowed than any form of holy living or temple service. And, not least of all, it is well-pleasing to that goddess whom you worship, a goddess exceptionally wise and a lover of wisdom, to whom as her name at least seems to indicate, knowledge and understanding are in the highest degree. For Isis is a Greek word, and so also is her enemy, Typhon, the Egyptian Seth, who is conceited, as his name implies, because of his ignorance and self-deception. End quote. The Egyptian festivals were celebrations with multiple functions. There was the obvious surface one, straightforward worship and public jubilation, but there was also a subtextual function of knowledge. To celebrate the god in the proper fashion, to replicate their feats and the events which defined them, was to know them and to understand them. To know the god was the end goal of Egyptian worship. It was a privilege granted to few, for the gods remained hidden away in the inner sanctum. But then, for a few days a year, the temple doors opened, and the god came forth. 
shining with fresh paint and clothing, surrounded by music and incense. The sun beamed upon the images, and the population burst into a celebration to dwarf even the best New Year's Eve. But of course, the festival season in Egypt was also a time of food, drinking, and celebration. A time for contemplation, jubilation, and, realistically, a great excuse to make yourself sick with food and beer. So, what's changed? 